Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. She's part of a wave of nearly 100 women, mostly Democrats, who are heading to Congress in January. Johanna Hayes is the first African-American woman in Connecticut to be elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. Coming up, we'll speak with Hayes about her election to the 5th Congressional District and find out what she hopes to accomplish first in Washington. Before we hear from Johanna Hayes, we wanted to focus in on what happened in local races. Democrats did well from the governor's race to statewide offices to capturing a solid majority in the General Assembly. Were you surprised at the results? You can join the conversation. 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, my next guest has been covering the Capitol for years. I want to welcome back to the show Mark Pazniokas, Capitol Bureau Chief at the Connecticut Mirror, ctmirror.org. Mark, welcome back. Good morning. Have you caught up on your sleep? You see the big cup of coffee <laughs> in my hand, don't you? So overall, were you surprised at the turnout for this for a midterm of all things? I was not surprised it was a good turnout. I was surprised at exactly how good it was, and I think everybody was. Uh, This was an incredibly volatile year. There clearly, it it was a weird year. There clearly was a lot of interest. There had been a lot of organizing since the election of President Trump. But on the other hand, the gubernatorial race uh, did not seem to particularly excite people. You had some very unconventional candidates. On uh, the Democratic side, I kept hearing that uh, the base was really not that uh, excited about Ned Lamont, uh, that his message was more playing defense against the uh, tax-cutting pledge of Bob Stefanowski. But, you know, but in the end, I, I, you know, I think it all gelled. All these forces came together to have uh, a midterm turnout that was something like 67 percent, a couple hundred thousand more people showing up to vote than typically vote in uh, midterm elections, gubernatorial elections. You mentioned these several factors. Uh, what helped Ned Lamont pull off this win? Because, again, we had these polls saying it was going to be very close. That's the same in 2010 and 2014. Um, and the fact that we had a Democratic governor in office and then we have another Democrat uh, being elected. Was it really the Trump effect that helped him? At the end of the day, I think it was. I mean, and you certainly saw it in, in the legislative races. Those are easier to analyze because they were just so dramatic. But in the case of the gubernatorial election, obviously, it was pretty much a 50 50 uh, race, which has been, by the way, has been the pattern in Connecticut. Um, we have not had a, a new governor win and take office after winning an open race. Uh, w- with 50 percent. I mean, that's been the pattern in Connecticut. We have multi-candidate races. Um, The other little historical fact that Governor Malloy loves since he is going to exit office as probably the least popular governor in the era of polling, um, he was happy to note that uh, he will be the first governor in 150 years to leave office and uh, and be succeeded by another member of his own party, that in cases where there's an open race, um, it, it, it's been going to the other party for years. 
so I think Malloy got, a, a, you know, Malloy got a kick out of that, that, you know, he is so low in the polls, but yet he did not bring down the man the, of his own party who was trying to succeed him. I'm speaking with Mark Pazniokas, Capitol Bureau, Bureau Chief at the Connecticut Mirror. You can join the conversation, too, 860-275-7266, as we reflect on what happened after Tuesday's election. We're focusing in on the statewide races, first with Governor, um, the fact that Ned Lamont uh, was able to pull off a win, despite uh, you know often uh, people thinking that they needed an outsider. You said 50-50 that uh, there are people in the state of Connecticut that really liked Bob Stefanowski's message. This is someone that came out of nowhere um, and proved a lot of people wrong, uh, Mark. And I'm wondering, uh, do you think that we might see him again? He was unsure about that. Uh, and I think uh, the last, you know, the last time you want to ask somebody that question is the day after a race. Um, Bob Stefanowski put about $3 million of his own money into what for him was a $6 million race, which was supplemented by $7 million from the Republican Governors Association. Uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, this was uh, he had a, he had a great plan on how to win a primary. He never quite figured out how to pivot to a larger message. All he would talk about was tax cutting. Now that uh, taxes in the economy obviously are very important. The poll showed that's probably the one and two issues for most people. But uh, he, I don't know that he ever really conveyed that he had a fuller grasp on all that a governor faces and. I think over time that was a problem for him. Uh, yesterday, uh, Ned Lamont uh, gave a speech uh, saying that he's willing to, to work with all sides. Let's hear a little bit of that clip. I need folks who are really to roll up their sleeves and get the job done. Just leave the labels at the door. I want labor there. I want business leaders there. I want Democrats there. I want Republicans there. We've got to work together to get through this thing, and that's how we're going to do it. Sounds good, but realistically, Mark, uh, what does uh, Governor-elect Lamont have uh, before him? Well, it's a big budget problem. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a month after he takes office in January, the General Assembly is going to want to see a detailed plan, something that neither Mr. Lamont or Mr. Stefanowski or anybody else was able to provide us during their campaign for governor. Uh, he also said yesterday he is going to stick to his promise of not raising the income tax. Uh, he would like to, through credits, <clears throat> lower property taxes over time. Over how much time that is, we don't know. Um, but, no, he's got a lot of lot of challenges in front of him. And one of the ironies of Tuesday night is that the extent of the Democratic victories in the General Assembly may be a complicating factor for him at times, not always uh, a benefit. So explain that a little bit more. Well, the more people you have in a caucus, uh, the more the, the broader the agenda is. When you have close margins, it's sometimes easier for leadership to focus people on the budget and not having them pursue other things that might be politically complicated. So, you know, we'll see on that. I, I think, you know, Lamont when it comes to the budget, is going to probably emerge to be more of a centrist. Um, you know, the Republicans wanted to characterize him as this crazy left liberal. You know, remember, he's a he's a, a wealthy Greenwich business guy. He got a reputation as a liberal through his challenge of Joe Lieberman over the war in Iraq in 2006, which was certainly a heartfelt uh, principle, you know, position. Uh, but 
when it comes to fiscal issues, I think he's more middle of the road than some folks think. He is. He owes labor. Labor did turn out for him. Um, but all he's really promised him at this point is he will he, he would not uh, launch any assault on collective bargaining laws, which the Republicans were ready to do. Uh, interestingly, Scott Walker, who sort of the poster child for taking on labor, he was in, in Wisconsin. He really uh, destroyed the public employee labor movement. He lost. He was among the losers uh, the other night. I understand that uh, Ned Lamont will be announcing a transition team later today. What are the yes. next steps? The next steps are uh, to do exactly that. Governor Malloy, when he took off or when he won in 2010, he already knew who his chief of staff was going to be. He knew who his budget director was going to be. Uh, So he was really ready to go forward. He understood that he faced uh, even a bigger problem than Ned Lamont faces. It was closer to $3.7 billion one-year deficit that Malloy faced. Uh, This one is $2 billion and... If you repeal some tax cuts that the legislature did uh, last year, incredibly, <laughs> they were there were tax cuts intended to take place this year. So they were trying to get political credit for it uh, this fall without paying the bill until next year. I'm not sure that bill can be paid next year. So so you can you can reduce the the budget problem certainly below two billion fairly painlessly if you do that. But then it gets hard. Let's talk about what happened in the Connecticut General Assembly. Uh, There was talk before uh, Tuesday that maybe the Republicans would uh, finally be in control. That didn't happen. No, (laughs) (laughs) ma'am. One measure of how volatile this year was, uh, I had within the space of an hour, I had a nearly identical conversation with the Republican Senate leader, Len Fasano, and the Democratic Senate leader, Marty Looney. And each of them said, well... I could see at the end of the night it stays 18-18 with different faces or that the Democrats go up two or three seats or the Republicans go up two or three seats. Uh, I mean, that's how crazy it was. Um, And, of course, it just was a solid Democratic uh, number. Now, Matt Ritter, the House Majority Leader, the Democratic uh, leader, he had told me before that he was very optimistic. He thought they might get as many as 86 seats. Uh, And of course, in the end, they top 90. It looks like they're going to be at 92, depending on how a a recount or two goes. Uh, Themis Claridis, uh, she's someone that's been rumored to become, you know, she could have been the House Speaker, um, but her race wasn't as uh, much of a landslide as as we previously thought? Um, she, She won comfortably, but the interesting thing was in her district is the Naugatuck Valley and also reaches into Woodbridge, which is, again, one of these well-to-do suburbs that have been breaking Democratic. And it was interesting that she did not do as well in as Woodbridge as she has in passing. So that seems to be part of the trend here, that we, we may be seeing something of a realignment. Some of these uh, suburbs that have traditionally been uh, either Republican or at least a battleground seem to be tilting to the Democrats. These are the, you know, including Greenwich. I mean, we, you know, we saw a state senator, Scott France, a Republican state senator, lose to uh, a very aggressive, uh, you know, young candidate named Alex Bergstein. Uh, She's a Yale PhD candidate. But to have a, a Democrat unseat a, a Republican state senator in Greenwich is is a headline. And there was also a state representative, a Democrat, who unseated a Republican in Greenwich as well. So 
after an election like this, you look at the map and you try to get a sense of these trends. And then the question is, what is kind of a temporal thing and what does signify something deeper? There is the Trump factor. The question is, when Donald Trump exits, do we go back to uh, what had been, which was a blue state uh, in federal races, but a competitive, an increasingly competitive state at the General Assembly? Um, right now, um, the Republicans are, have, a, have a big problem, and, and that problem is Donald J. Trump. Speaking of uh, flips in the Connecticut General Assembly, uh, joining me and Mark Pasniokas from the Connecticut Mirror uh, on the phone is Will Haskell, who was elected to serve the 26th Senate District. And uh, Will, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. First, congratulations. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Uh, we were hearing uh, Mark talk about some uh, big surprises in Greenwich. Uh, your district, the 26th district, uh, includes Westport. And you unseated someone who's been in office as long as you've been alive? <laughs> That's right. It's a district that hasn't been blue since the 1970s. But I'm really proud to say that uh, through hard work, we managed to flip it this year. And I'm, I was just listening in. I can't wait to serve alongside Alex Bergstein in the Senate. So for our listeners who may not know um, know you, you're 22, a recent a grad from Georgetown. Why run for the Connecticut General Assembly? Well, you know, Mark was just talking about the Trump factor. I really was inspired to uh, come home and start knocking doors and, and run for the state Senate. In the morning after Donald Trump's election, I think like a lot of people, I woke up and felt the need to join the fight against that agenda. And I really do believe that that fight starts at the state and local level. The voters, I knocked on around 4,000 doors. I held 142 meet and greets over the last eight months. And I met so many voters who are looking to the state legislature to be the first line of defense against what we see happen in, in Washington. Yes, the challenges facing Connecticut are huge, and that is going to be the focus uh, of the Senate over the next few years. But we also have to remember that suddenly, LGBTQ equality and environmental regulations and consumer protections and voting rights uh, seem to be up for debate. And I hope that to play a role in the state Senate in protecting Connecticut's values in the face of what's coming down the pike from D.C. Uh, Mark, uh, you know a lot about uh, the, the person that he unseated, and that's uh, Senator Tony Boucher, uh, someone who was well-respected. Again, this was because of, of the Trump factor that, that she lost the seat? Tony Boucher uh, has been in the General Assembly for more than 20 years, although she won her Senate seat, I'm pretty sure it was 2008, which was interesting. I mean, she survived the Barack Obama landslide in Connecticut. But one of her problems was she has now twice explored office, state for statewide office, rather. And to do so this year, to be competitive in a Republican primary, you really had to uh, be in line with Donald Trump. And that certainly did not help her in that district. Um, you know, I, she's always been, I think, a little bit more conservative than um, than that uh, than that area. I'm sorry, my headphones cut out. I just want to make sure you could hear me. Uh, but um, so you know, so I think Tony Boucher. Uh, it was one of those times of you know, you're around a little bit too long. Um, your district has shifted, and then you have uh, a very uh, you know, very aggressive young guy like Will Haskell who comes in and is willing to go knock on 4,000 doors. 
Uh, Will, uh, now that you're going to be, uh, again, headed to the to the heart, the capital uh, uh, come January, you know, we know that some of the Connecticut's biggest challenges uh, is is its uh, multi-billion dollar deficits and these big uh, pension liabilities. I mean, how do you think you'll be able to work with uh, across the aisle to, to uh, make some inroads? Because this has been a, a longstanding issue for several years now. You know, I'm a big supporter. It, it's a great question. And of course, it is the dark cloud hanging over Connecticut's head. I'm a big supporter of the legacy obligation trust model. Part of the reason I decided to run as a young person is that I think we need more stakeholders in Connecticut's future at the table. Once that happens, I think we won't be so content to kick the can down the road and continue the cycle of bonding. I'm really interested in the work that the Pension Sustainability Commission is doing. I think we need to look at our underutilized state assets and figure out how we can make those more profitable and direct those profits to pay off our over $100 billion of unfunded liabilities. It's a, not a silver bullet, but it's certainly a step in the right direction. And I'm excited that uh, come January, I think we're going to start taking many steps in the right direction finally. Uh, last question for you, for Will. Um, you're from the Fairfield County region. You're actually someone who's supporting tolls to help fund uh, for transportation. Is that going to be a, a tough sell? Now that the election's passed, do you think it's going to happen? So I thought I was going to lose votes on tolls. I thought it was the right thing to do, just based on arithmetic, if nothing else. But uh, I found just the opposite. People in this community recognize that we are getting the raw end of the deal. We're the only state between Maine and North Carolina that isn't asking out-of-state drivers or trucking companies to contribute to tolls. A lot of folks in Connecticut drive up to Massachusetts or through New York. Connecticut drivers, in fact, paid over $6 million in tolls to Massachusetts. And Massachusetts drivers pay not a cent to Connecticut. So I think Fairfield County is ready to explore high-tech tolling options that offer lower fares for commuters, uh, lower fares for low-income folks and small business owners. But it's certainly something that I found that voters are very open to and actually excited for. We sit here wringing our hands, wondering why the train from Westport to Grand Central has gotten slower since 1950, wondering why. We have 302 structurally deficient bridges, according to our own Department of Transportation. It's because we are leaving money on the table. Well, I want to thank Will Haskell for joining us just for a few minutes. Again, the senator-elect for Connecticut's 26th district. Uh, Will, thanks for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you, and thanks, Mark. Good to talk to you both. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Before we uh, say goodbye to Mark Pazniokas, uh, we were talking a little bit about the problem that uh, Republicans face, uh, again, with this blue wave, uh, so to speak, that uh, swept uh, statewide offices and this uh, now uh, easy majority uh, in the legislature. Um, can we talk a little bit more about how, uh, Republic how Republicans are going to have to uh, rethink their messaging uh, moving forward? Well, <clears throat> after 2008, they went back to basics. They, they recognized that the Republican National Party was very much out of step with New England. And under Larry Caffaro, and more recently under Themis Claridis, they have voted strictly on fiscal responsibility. And they recruited, they focused on recruiting candidates uh, because you can survive trends at times. And what we've seen in 2010, 2012, 2014, 2016, despite the fact that Republicans could not win a single statewide office, um, they made gains. They made gains. And all that was washed away uh, Tuesday night because they could not figure out how to disengage from Donald Trump. And so we have, after showing that Connecticut voters know how to split their tickets and that coattails really have gone out of fashion here. Um, now they are confronted with 
um, called them reverse coattails from a guy who wasn't even on the ballot. And guess what? In 2020, he's going to be on the ballot. So I don't know how they rebuild this time. Um, they, um, they have good, good leadership, and they, they certainly shown over the last eight years how you can build a party. But unfortunately for them, they now must go back. It's not as bad as it was. I mean, they were down to uh, 37 seats the night of 2008 um, in, a, in a chamber with 151 in the House. They were down to 12, uh, as, and they're back to 12 in the Senate. So, yes, it's kind of a tough road. I think there's going to be some soul-searching there about how they overcome what is a national image for the party and the president that does not play in Connecticut or the rest of New England. Mark Pasniokas, Capitol Bureau Chief at the Connecticut Mirror. Mark, thanks for your time. My pleasure. This is where we live. Coming up, Johanna Hayes is considered a rock star in the Democratic Party, securing a win in the 5th Congressional District despite being a political newcomer. I spoke with her after her historic win, my conversation with Johanna Hayes, when we come back after a short break. And you can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. From Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Johanna Hayes has made history with her election to Connecticut's 5th Congressional District. Her background as a single mother and her career as an educator helped set her apart from traditional candidates who've run in the 5th District. I spoke to Hayes Wednesday afternoon. Johanna, welcome back to the show. Hi, good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. First off, congratulations to you. How are you feeling about your win? I'm still soaking it in. It really is hard to believe. Uh, what is it about uh, when I know when you went up to that stage during your your victory speech? Uh, the crowd uh, was so excited for you, and we could see um, that you and you know you were emotional at times. This was a very big milestone in your life. Tell me what was going through your mind as you walked up on that stage. Just that we did it. We actually did it. I mean, I announced my candidacy a little over six months ago. Not even six months ago. Um, had never thought about this. Had you know, never explored, you know, a campaign committee. So literally we were building the plane while we were flying it. And just to see it all come together, you know, so many people had worked so hard and were just taking up every part of this. And I, w- I was looking at them. Some people had been there from the beginning and some were brand new, but I just can't believe we did it. Why do you, why do you believe you won, Johanna? I think I had a message that really resonated with so many different people. Um, This idea that, you know, no matter who we are, no matter where we come from, that we have something valuable to give, um, that we are a part of the process, that government should represent all of us. I, I had a woman come over to me who had gone through some very difficult things in the last year. You know, nothing about her was similar to my life story, but she said, you represent me. You know, your story is my story. And I need someone who understands what it feels like and what's happening, you know, to be on the floor of Congress. You you told the crowd on election night that uh, we need someone to go who is us, who understands us, who understands what we're going through, who's close to the pain that we're experiencing. Can you talk a little bit more about that thought that you were sharing uh, with the crowd about your background uh, when you were on Where We Live uh, earlier, um, first as uh, the National Teacher of the Year and then later when you were uh, 
campaigning for the primary. You know, we talked a little bit about your background um, growing up in the Waterbury area as a, a single mother, what it was like to go uh, go to school and get your degree and become an educator. Um, these are all of these things about your life that you felt connected with people in the 5th District? I think it was actually, I mean, that was a part of it, but I think it was the bigger part, I think, was the transition and working through it. Just saying, you know, we have obstacles, we have challenges. How do we get through them? I've met so many people in this district who, like myself, went back to school and had to take on mounting student loan debt, who, like myself, worked and had to rely on the protection of organized labor and their unions and, you know, that whole collective bargaining action, who have been first-time homebuyers and suffered under that mortgage crisis. So I think it was the journey through, not not so much the beginning. There were so many people who said, you know, you worked your way out of that situation, and that's what I'm trying to do, or that's what we need to make sure those opportunities exist for other people to do. So I think, you know, I, I told my story as a foundation, but more importantly, it was working through those challenges that really resonated with people. What do you want to accomplish first when you head to Washington in January? Wow. There's so much going on, and, and I think just this election and the last couple of days really has illuminated so many of the challenges that people have. I've heard a lot from people in this district that health care is a major concern, so I'm very interested in seeing where we land and where, where you know, how do we move forward on issues surrounding health care and the future of Medicare and Social Security. Education is, has always been very important to me. It's, it's my wheelhouse. It's, it's what I'm really deeply invested in. I'd like to see us look at the future of our education system. You know, how do we make sure that we are preparing our children from pre-K through college, having career training paths, making sure that our schools are safe without having a, a plan that calls for arming teachers? is something I think that would be most important for me and one of the first things that I would want to do. But there's so many things. Every day, you know, there's something else, and there's so many things that are important to people in this district. Um, because you're a first-time uh, politician, uh, what do you think about the learning curve? Who are you going to lean on uh, to help you navigate uh, Washington? <laughs> I think just like everything else, I got a lot of support from many people after I announced my campaign, but you know, you take the advice, you use what you can, and you add something different. My campaign was, in, in many ways, not traditional. You know, there were things that people said, you have to do it this way. This is the only way that works. And, you know, I really just thought, well, as a voter, that never works for me. So I'm, I'm willing to try something a little different. So I think that'll be a combination of people. There will be people who are deeply rooted in politics, who have a lot of knowledge and information that I would love for them to share. But also, I'll think, you know, as a voter, as a constituent, as a member of the community, what was it that I was looking for that I did not see in my leaders? Uh, you take over a seat uh, from Elizabeth Estee, who was well-respected, uh, despite the scandal uh, that led her to not seek re-election. Have you spoken with her? Is she someone that you're going to talk with um, again as you head to Washington in January? I absolutely will talk to Congresswoman Esty. I, um, she, she reached out several times last night. I missed her call a few times, and then we haven't been able to connect this morning, but she's been supportive. Um, she sent several texts this morning, and she's willing to be, offer any help that she can through the transition. 
um, I absolutely will reach out to her. There are, despite what happened, there are many things that I was proud that she did as my congresswoman. Many of the services that she provided for veterans and many of the programs that in this district that she was working on, on the campaign trail, I, so many people spoke very fondly of her and talked about the ways that she had helped them, and they were hoping that those things could continue. So I would absolutely want to get as much information as I could from her in order to continue the work that she started for the people in this district. When we think about the the 5th District, it's historically Republican. So I'm curious um, how how you plan to reach out to those voters in your district who who may have supported your opponent or who um, maybe didn't feel like they connected with you as a candidate, but now you're their congresswoman. Um, How will you reach reach out to them? Well, I knew going into this that no matter what happened, I would want to represent all of the people in this district. So you start by listening to people, hearing their concerns. I think that many of us want the same things, just the way that we get to them is different. I know there are some things that where I am, you know, I guess the opposite on some issues, but I would be willing and want to know, well, why do you feel this way or what, how can we have some sort of compromise? But I would like to note that for as much as people say that this district is different, many of the towns that are historically Republican or I was told I would never be able to perform, and people came out and voted. So I don't think that people are, I think people are moving away from those hardline, I am a hardline Republican, a hardline Democrat. People people care about issues. People care about their families. And I think we just start by talking about the issues. Uh, when you were campaigning, you talked often about the need for and the importance of diversity uh, in the Congress. Uh, you know, some people may have been turned off by that message. Uh, I'm just curious if you could uh, talk through, you know, how you navigated that uh, conversation and how you will continue that conversation again as, as a congresswoman in the 5th District. Well, um, I've never strayed from that because it doesn't mean when I say diversity, it is Our Congress should represent all people in our communities, diversity of thought, diversity of experience, religious, ethnic backgrounds, everyone. It should, the people who are in our communities should be able to find themselves represented in Congress. I feel like, you know, people who took that in a different way really are not open to this idea that we are, we should be incredibly inclusive. By saying that we need all people there in in Congress or all people represented does not exclude any one group. You know, I I got criticized because people said, oh, she's a woman. They're saying they need more women. And I can't not be a woman. You know, it's just this idea that all of these groups should be represented. And diversity, we're not trying to all be the same. I think our differences are beautiful. And we celebrate our differences. And, you know, just learn to develop deeper understanding and work together within those differences. Uh, at the same time, you are among a wave of women, many Democrats who've been elected to serve in Congress. Uh, what does that mean for you, uh, this moment in our country's history? I think for me, that is deeply personal. I mean, um, again, women represent a, a large part of our communities. They should be better. I'd probably um, work out differently if we had more women at the table, because we know the issues that are important to us, and we know what, we've, what we would like to see. I mean, your priorities are determined by the people in the room, and there are not enough women. So I'm happy to see so many women uh, better represented in our next Congress. 
At the same time, also, you know, we hear from voters on both sides or even the unaffiliated who are tired of the partisanship, the gridlock in Washington. Um, how are you going to work through that, uh, Johanna? Well, I'm tired of it, too. And that was the whole reason I decided to run. I think that elected officials have a responsibility to serve the people who elected them. And just because you're not the party in power, you compromise, you collaborate, you work together and you make some tough decisions, but you can't, to do nothing is not an option. And I think people are just fed up with that. So I would continue to be a collaborator, a problem solver, just like I've always been. You know, I I said that when I was campaigning. When you're a teacher, you don't have the luxury of picking and choosing who you advocate for. You have to work hard for everyone in your class. You don't ask kids, is your mom a Republican or a Democrat? You don't ask parents that. You just figure out what the problem is and try to work towards a solution. So I would continue to do that same thing. Uh, Moving forward between now and again uh, at the start of your term in January, um, have you thought about what it's going to be like to to balance uh, this this life uh, in Washington and in Connecticut? (laughs) And, you know, what are your what are your uh, um, your plans over the next few weeks, Johanna? Well, I know there's several orientations. I would have to seek out um, housing in Washington, but I guess it would be no different than every other mom or every other parent who works and raises a family and juggles their life, That just like so many people in our communities do. I worked three jobs while I was going to school, and I had children, and you rely on the support of your family and your friends, and you work within a crazy, hectic schedule, but it's possible. It happens. You know, that's modern-day America. Well, I want to thank Johanna Hayes again. Uh, she's the newest member of the Connecticut Congressional Delegation. How does it feel when you hear that, that you're the first African-American woman elected to Congress from Connecticut? Oh, my God. Someone last night called me Congresswoman, and I was like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, I guess you're right. It, it feels awesome. It, it's wonderful. It, I'm so just to be a part of this history. It just nowhere else but in America could something like this happen. And I hope that every little girl who looks at me can see themselves represented. I spoke to Johanna Hayes on Wednesday again. She's the newest member of Connecticut's congressional delegation. Uh, Joining us now is Daniela Altamari, who's a reporter for the Hartford Current. She's covered this race and many others. Daniela, welcome back to the show. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. So when you hear uh, Johanna uh, after her big win, again, the similar sentiments that she shared with uh, voters on the campaign trail? Uh, yes, uh, very much so. I mean, you know, there's almost like a pinch me is this real uh, sort of sentiment that comes through uh, in your interview with her. Uh, when we uh, when we were talking, and I asked her about Elizabeth Esty. Um, is this uh, is this something that uh, surprises you that that she's looking to um, you know reach out to Congresswoman Esty uh, before her term is up to get um, advice uh, to talk with her about uh, what what goes on in Washington? Considering uh, you know Congresswoman Esty was well respected and before that scandal. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's too surprising. I mean, you know, she's in the job now, and, and uh, Johanna Hayes will be in that job soon enough. And, you know, you you talk to the person who preceded you. It doesn't mean you endorse everything they did or everything that happened or you approve of it. But, you know, you're just sort of casting a wide net. And she's probably talking to many, many folks. Um, maybe she's reaching out to other past office holder, you know, other past uh, uh, representatives from the 5th District as well. 
Uh, when you look at the 5th District, again, historically a Republican district, uh, I'm just curious what you heard on the campaign trail from people who may have wanted to support uh, her opponent or who were unsure about um, you know, losing a congresswoman like Elizabeth Esty. I think there was just a tremendous excitement uh, among uh, voters that I spoke with in the 5th District about her. Um, Yeah, of course, you're right. Not everyone supported her. And there are uh, Republicans in the district. It is uh, a very sort of, uh, you know, mixed district. I mean, there are pockets of uh, of. Uh, democratic support there's uh, other parts of the district that are that are more uh more you know skew more republican um but i think there was a lot of excitement i remember uh going to a debate in uh it was a beautiful summer afternoon in july a very warm day and um you know you imagine a lot of people on vacation or at the beach or whatever this was before the primary and uh johanna hayes was debating mary glassman in washington connecticut the room was packed there was so much excitement there were many people there who sort of had you know perhaps not been involved before not been that focused on politics before but they were there on a gorgeous summer afternoon to hear this debate when we think about the impact of not only Johanna's rise to Congress, but when we see uh, nationwide other young uh, women of color, uh, you know, be, being elected to represent uh, their districts uh, from their states, uh, do you think this is going to be uh, a continuation of more new faces being interested in politics and wanting to represent Connecticut from what we think of as traditional candidates, Daniela? Let's hope so. I mean, um, she, Johanna Hayes is part of this class going to Washington, as you point out, from all over the country, people who are real trailblazers, who are first in their state or in some cases first in the nation. You know, you're seeing uh, the first Muslim woman uh, serving in Congress. You're seeing the first Native American candidates uh, who won on Tuesday serving in Congress. And she's sort of part of this big movement. And uh, it is exciting, you know, no matter which side of the political aisle you fall on, uh, it's exciting to see somebody who perhaps hasn't been in power before um, reach these, you know, very high levels of power. It's, it's, It's interesting. It's dynamic. It's exciting. Daniela Altamari, again, is a reporter for the Hartford Current. Daniela, thank you for your perspective. We appreciate it. Thank you. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, did your town's ballot confuse you on Election Day? Did you even notice those two ballot questions uh, besides voting for the candidates of your choice? Did your town have two-sided ballots? You can join our conversation. We actually want to hear from you about your election experience, 860-275-7266. And right after the break, we're going to talk about ballot design and why it matters. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, we're going to move away from all this political discussion, and we want to actually hear from you. Do you see your primary care doctor for routine checkups, or do you wait until you're sick? On the next Where We Live, we're going to sit down with doctors to hear how access to care is changing from telemedicine to at-home doctor visits. Don't forget to join us. That's tomorrow. Now, the two ballot questions in Connecticut passed overwhelmingly, but were you one of the voters who missed the questions entirely because of the way the actual paper ballot was designed? Do you think your town or city could make it easier for voters to vote? Of course. Why can't there be standard ballots statewide? We want to hear from you. Join our conversation, 860-275-726. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live to talk about ballot design fails and the consequences on democracy. Joining us now by phone is Dana Chisnell, co-director of the Center for Civic Design. Dana, welcome to the show. 
Thank you, Lucy. I'm delighted to be here. So uh, for those of us who may not know much about the Center for Civic Design, so this is a nonprofit. You're actually working on ways to better improve interaction between government and citizens? That's exactly right. And we work with a lot of local election officials to do that. And so when we talk about ballots, so the most infamous ballot, of course, was way back in in 2000 during the presidential election, those butterfly ballots that led to many hanging chads. Can you walk us through some of the the problems when uh, registrars and, and states design paper ballots and some of the mistakes that are made? So some classic mistakes are that uh, important parts of the ballot are not easily recognizable. I'm going to guess, looking at the Connecticut uh, ballot uh, from Tuesday, that some people may have thought that the questions that were on the ballot were actually instructions. And we know that people kind of avoid reading instructions. Uh, But in addition to that, Things are not always arranged in a way that's logical to users, to voters, and uh, there are just parts of it that are difficult to recognize and to read. So, for example, uh, we know that when you use all uppercase letters, that's harder for people to read because it looks like one big block. The way people read is that they recognize the shape of words. Uh, Likewise, having things centered makes it difficult for people to find the beginning of a line. So centering text is great for wedding invitations and wine bottles, but not so great for uh, ballots and other official materials. So given... uh, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Those are a couple of the big ones. So when you look at the Connecticut ballot, so uh, red flag when you see these two very important ballot questions uh, smushed uh, to uh, the right side, uh, kind of a middle below of this uh, very large ballot? Yeah, this is a, uh, an unconventional layout in, um, in my experience. I know that Connecticut, New Jersey, and New York all have adopted a similar kind of layout uh, basically echoing uh, liver machines uh, from, you know, the 1950s and 60s, and they just put that on paper. And so when you get to the questions on this particular ballot, there are a couple of really interesting things about that. One is that the answer, yes or no, is above the text of the actual question. That's very unusual. Uh, But also the text is hard to read just because of the layout. Uh, It is what we say, fully justified instead of left left justified. So there are these funny gaps between words uh, that are bigger or smaller, depending on how many words it's trying to fit in the line. And the text itself is not, uh, is not in plain language. So even if you get to the point where you find the box and you're able to read the words, understanding what the implications of these questions are, uh, it's not intuitively obvious from the 100 or 200 words that are mm-hmm. that are there. This is where we live. On the phone with me, Dana Chisnell, co-director of the Center for Civic Design. Again, this is a nonprofit that's uh, working uh, to make uh, uh, voters uh, get the right information, but also on voting day to be able to understand uh, what's before them before they cast their ballot. You can join our conversation, too. Did uh, your ballot in your town, okay, we have 169 municipalities and cities and towns and villages in Connecticut, and the ballots look different depending on where you live. Uh, Was anything about that ballot confused? 
confusing. Again, you can join us, 860-275-7266. I'm going to actually out my husband uh, that he totally missed the two very important ballot questions on the right, (laughs) despite knowing about them. And what about two-sided ballots? I mean, this is a big no-no, Dana? It's not necessarily, uh, but you have to help voters navigate and know. And there are a couple of ways that you can do that. This is a big problem in New York City. Lots of people complained about two-sided ballot missing uh, contests. But you can, it is possible. The systems support it and the laws allow it to include uh, directions on the face of the ballot to turn the ballot over and vote the second side. Um, but the version of the, uh, of the Connecticut ballot that I'm looking at, that I just found on the Internet, uh, doesn't really have a lot of room for doing that, so you have to make space to make it happen. Um, now, having said that, the ballot layout programs in most election management systems are kind of hard to use, and uh, making the space to make that work is, can be tough. Um, we were when we think about um, issues with voting. Often uh, the ire is toward uh, the local registrars, but really, um, how limited are municipalities in designing their ballots? And uh, should we be looking at our general assembly uh, for helping streamline it? Despite the fact that elections here are decentralized, it's up to the the local registrars. Right. So uh, the local registrars are subject to state laws, though, and there are probably laws on the Connecticut books that say what the layout of the ballot should be, what the typeface needs to be, what size the typeface needs to be. So that's a big thing, that there's just a bunch of uh, statutes that they have to meet. Uh, And so it may be the case that having the bubbles on the ballot where they are is specified in in state law. In addition to that, the the back end of voting systems, the, the election management systems that uh, live in the election department that voters never see, uh, also have technological constraints. If you look at what the layout system can reasonably do and uh, what the tallying and the counting systems can actually do. So. On the ballots that I'm looking at from Connecticut, for example, there are these little tick marks around the border. Those are uh, timing marks uh, where uh, the bubbles that the voter fills out have to line up. And that means that's where the scanning system will find uh, the, the mark that the voter made in order to count and register the vote. So... Those are two really big constraints. In addition, in, uh, in Connecticut, you have this other constraint, and that is that by uh, history and culture and tradition, uh, wanted to keep the sort of layout that people were used to from lever machines. But there are at least one generation now of voters who've never seen lever machines, except maybe in a museum. And uh, the typical layout uh, that is not based on lever machines, it's actually a three-column layout that is uh, pretty simple and straightforward that lists the contests in order from federal to state to municipal in, in blocks. 
Um, and that's a different kind of navigation. Uh, Dana, we just have a couple of minutes left. You know, often uh, when we think about um, of how to advance uh, voting and make it simpler, uh, you know, there, there's, again, a reliance on using the paper ballot. When we think about uh, hacking that's uh, taken place and, and fears about um, the security of someone's vote, does that kind of uh, a trade-off in terms of how we may never really be advancing when we think about are there other ways to be voting where we feel safe and, and secure with our vote? Yeah, the near future of voting systems looks like a system that the Los Angeles County Election Department has been working on for the last five or six years. Uh, it sort of meets a middle ground where you can uh, download an app to your own device, get your ballot, mark it on your own device, and then take it to a vote center uh, where you can scan a QR code that has your choices on it, brings it up on a beautiful state-of-the-art uh, tablet where you can review to make sure that those are your votes uh, and make changes if you've changed your mind. And then that prints out uh, a paper uh, list of your choices that is human readable and human countable. Uh, so that that looks a lot different from how we vote now, but it kind of meets people where they are, isn't it? especially is going to be great for people with disabilities who have uh, assistive technology that they use to operate in the world. Well, I want to thank Dana Chisnell again, co-director of the Center for Civic Design, uh, talking about the importance of ballot design. Dana, before you go, has anyone from Connecticut ever reached out to your organization? <laughs> we tend to meet uh, state officials at various conferences here and there, uh, but we would love to talk to some locals, too, about what their questions and what their challenges are. Well, we hope that they, they do reach out to you again. Dana, thanks for your time. Thanks so much, Lucy. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. And thanks to senior producer Lydia Brown and technical producer Kion Wolf. Uh, we did get a call from Jessica in Milford who said she knew about those ballot questions, too, but still missed them entirely. Jessica, you weren't the only one. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel again. Thanks for listening.